Because many times a deacon, because he is a servant, will find himself serving alongside with his wife. A single mom has a need, a, a widower, a widow in the church has a need, and, and because wisdom dictates he doesn't go there alone, he brings his wife along. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in the 16th and final chapter of the Book of Romans as we near the end of our year-long study. This chapter sees the Apostle Paul offering a number of greetings and salutations to the readers at Rome. Oftentimes, we tend to skim over many of these names, but as we will see today, there is a message even in a contact list. Today, we'll look at the exhortation to serve God's people. In the Bible, it's not the amount of sin, it's the awareness of sin. Was this man a sinner? Simon, of course he was. He was as bankrupt as she was. The only problem was is that her sins were visible, his were hidden. She was guilty of sins of the flesh. He was guilty of sins of the spirit. Both of them were equally sinners. Both of them were equally in need. Both of them were bankrupt and could not pay for their own sin unless they would pay it forever in a place called hell. But my point is, in going to this passage, is not only did the Lord commend her for kissing his feet, but he also reminded Simon that he had neglected to show the Lord Jesus some basic hospitality, and included among that was a, a greeting with a kiss. And so I learned from Luke 7 and from other passages in the New Testament that a common expression of greeting and affection in the first century was a holy kiss. Again, nothing passionate, nothing fleshly, a holy kiss. And so the question becomes, how do we apply this today? We're to be all things to all men. Uh, J.B. Phillips, the first one to write a paraphrase translation in England in the 1950s, read this verse, give each other a hearty handshake all around for my sake. However you want to translate it, here's the point. The principle is binding. The cultural expression might change. Years ago, over 20 years ago, uh, we had a missionary, one of our missionaries who came here from Poland, and uh, she wanted to help us understand the adjustment she made as an American when she moved from the States to Poland to minister to the Polish people. And she said, you know, this is one of the first times wherever I went, I had to kiss people. Whenever you greeted someone, you kissed them on the cheek. Didn't matter who they were. And so she said, I want you to get a feel of the kind of adjustment that we have to make. So she asked all the people there in that Wednesday night service, I want you to find someone who's not a member of your family, of the same sex, and I want you to go kiss them on each cheek. I want you to empathize with me and what I have to go through. I want you to see the kind of adjustments we make as missionaries. Well, most of the guys like myself, I said, I think I'll empathize from afar. Uh, you know, the Bible says, be all things to all men. Uh, we might paraphrase that with the modern, modern idiom, when in Rome, do as the Romans. Well, I figured I wasn't in Rome, so I wasn't going to do it. But what I want you to see that I don't want you to miss is that there was a kindness, there was an affection, there was a warmth here in the early church. Now, those are all by way of introduction. 
Paul now gives us a snapshot, a picture of the church, and he highlights at least three principles. You may want to jot these down for further reflection there in your bulletin. Number one, God's church is to serve his people. God's people, God's church are to serve his people. If God has called us to be anything, he's called us to be servants. Jesus, when his disciples were in a discussion over who is the greatest. He says, it's not to be this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you, let him be the servant. Let him be your servant. You see it up here on the screen? You see the word servant? It's the Greek word diakonos. Here, he writes in Romans 16:1, the apostle, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant. Same word, different ending because it's a case language where endings change, diakonon. Even if you don't read Greek, you can see it's basically the same word. She is a servant of the church, which is in Sincrea. Same word. See, the word just meant a servant. And so some of the translations, a few of them, in fact, just three or maybe four major English translations do not render this verse a servant of the church, but a deacon of the church a deacon of the church. Uh, Today's New International Version does it, the TNIV. Uh, The New Living Letters do it, uh, which was done by a group of people. It's not really a uh, version. It's what we call a translation, the NLT. There's a difference between a version and a translation. The King James Version, the New American Standard Version, it's done by a group of scholars, anywhere from sometimes... 70 to a few hundred who are involved in the translation of the Bible from the original to the receptor language. A translation is done like the original Living Bible or the Phillips by one person or sometimes just a handful of people. So the NLT does it that way. The, uh, not the RSV, but the new RSV, which if you ever go into a very liberal church, they always use the new RSV and for a reason. Uh, the TNIV Today is New International Version, which was a gender-neutral Bible. And then the new New NIV. The NIV came out in, uh, originally in the 80s. And so now when you go and buy a new NIV, not the TNIV, but a new NIV, since 2010 when they p- completed that translation, came out in paper in 2011, you're getting a blend between the NIV 84 And many times you'll hear me quote the NIV 84. Why? Because I want you to understand that I'm not endorsing the new NIV. Because that's a blend between the old NIV and the TNIV. And there are translations that, again, 99% of it would change nothing. They're very pure. But there's a few verses because of some theological presuppositions that they take to the text that they bias the text with. But all the other translations, the old NIV... The RSV, the ESV, the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New American Standard, the Southern Baptist Holman Christian Standard Bible, the the New English or the Net Bible as we call it, they all translate it, not deacon, but servant. Well, what's in the original? Deacon. But why do they do that? Well, in many languages of the world, you know, people, um, they don't read Greek or Hebrew And so they're reading what's done by a group of translators who are very faithful to the original. Some of the translations I just mentioned, they are superb, superb translations. In some languages of the world, uh, they don't distinguish between servant and deacon. It always says deacon. So for instance, when I'm in Eastern Europe, 
all the Slavic languages of the world. When you come to Romans 16, it just says deacon. And in your mind, you have to supply, is this capital D deacon or is this small letter D? So Jesus said here, he that would be great among you, let him be the servant or the deacon of all. That's the way most languages would read it. They have the same word. And in your mind, you have to supply, is he speaking specifically about the office or is he just speaking about someone who is a servant? So what's going on here? Because this is a hot verse and that's why I'm running down this rabbit trail. Because people want women pastors in the church. They want women deacons in the church. But is that really what this text is saying? Understand, like in this verse I just quoted from Mark, there are 25 other instances in the New Testament where no one debates that the word deacon just means a servant. It's not capital D referring to the office, but small letter D referring to someone who is simply a servant. There are only two offices in the New Testament church. There was three. There was the office of apostle, but there are no apostles today. I hope you understand that. So when you go by a church and you see on their marquee, apostle so-and-so, he's not an apostle. To have been an apostle, you had to have seen the resurrected Lord in his physical body. You had to have been personally chosen by him to be an, a sent one, an apostle. And if those two things were true, 2 Corinthians 12 tells me that you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only a true apostle could do. So there are no apostles, but there are two remaining offices as reflected in Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. The word overseer is used interchangeably in the New Testament with the word pastor, bishop, elder. It's the same office. Many times in the same verse, in the same breath, he'll refer to him as an overseer. And then in the next word, he'll call them elders. Same people. So there's two offices in the New Testament church. Now, where did the office of elder come from? From the Old Testament. It's not unique to the New Testament. There were elders in Israel in the Old Testament. Where does the office of deacon come? You don't find it in the Old Testament. It's apparently there in the, in the New Testament epistles. So where does it come from? Acts chapter 6. Why don't you hold your finger here and turn to Acts chapter 6. You don't have to go back too far. It's just the book right in front of you. Turn to Acts chapter 6 for just a moment. Uh, the book of Acts is an important book. Again, Luke wrote it. It covers the very first 30 years of church history from the ascension of Christ through the three missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And there was a unique issue that was going on here in Acts, the sixth chapter. We read in the opening verse, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily service of food. This was a unique time in the history of the church. About 50 days before, Jews from all over uh, the Roman Empire came to Jerusalem. If you were a pious Jew, you took the command of God seriously, and you knew that it was mandated that if you were 18 years of age or older, you had to come to Jerusalem to celebrate things like Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, and, and Pentecost. This was no ordinary Passover. This was the first Passover in over 2,000 years where the literal Passover lamb was the Lord Jesus himself. On the Feast of First Fruits, the Lord Jesus himself, we call it Easter Sunday, came out of the grave alive. In Pentecost, penta meaning 50, 50 days later from the resurrection, 
This was the first Pentecost in 2,000 years where God the Holy Spirit came. No one wanted to leave. So you have Hellenistic Jews. Those are Jews who are raised outside of Israel. And then you have Hebraistic Jews, Jews who are native to Israel. And because everyone stayed, because they wanted to learn from the apostles, they wanted to understand the scriptures as they carried it back to their respective countries, people shared food, they housed people who were only planning to come for a short time, and and now they're here for this long, protracted period of time. And some of the Jews, the Greek Jews from outside of Israel, they were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Look at verse 2 now. And the 12, that's the apostles... The twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to, it's a verb form, to deacon tables. Same word, just in verb form. It's It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to deacon or to serve tables. So right here, we find the apostles saying, look, it's not wise for us to invest our time, our effort, our energy in serving tables, because if we do, we will neglect the priorities that God has uniquely entrusted to us. And so for this reason, they call seven men. Now the word deacon, you don't see it in your English text, but it's found twice in the Greek text. First in verse one, in noun form, it looks like a verb here in verse one, but he speaks about those who are overlooked in the, the, the administration, the, de- the deaconizing of tables. And then it's used again as, ver- as a verb in verse two. And again, it simply means a servant. But these servants are gonna be different kinds of servants. He says, I want you to find seven Men, seven men. Now, the big question I'm trying to ask and answer is Phoebe a deaconess? Are there three offices in the New Testament? Is there the office of elder, the office of deacon, and the office of deaconess? I I don't think so for several reasons. Reason number one is contextually there's nothing in Romans 16 that would indicate that we should take it as a capital D rather than a small letter D, a capital servant rather than a small letter servant. Number two, when you come here to Acts chapter 6, where we find the establishment of the deacons, we read something very significant. Select from among you seven men. Now, I know the term men can be used generically of mankind, anthropos, like men and women. So when we speak of, when Paul says brethren, he's not excluding the sisters. Brothers and sisters, you could render it, I suppose. But here he uses the word men that is specific to males. Don't get seven women. Get seven men among you who are going to be servants. Now, someone called me recently on the Bible line and they said, well, what are deacons supposed to do in the church? What's their their job description? And I know it's kind of confusing in our day because the term deacon is used so loosely. In some churches, every person who's a member of the church is called a deacon. And I suppose in the truest sense, that's okay because we're all called to be servants. He that would be great among you is to be the servant or the deacon of all. In some churches, the deacons are the ruling body, so to speak, and they do what the elders are supposed to do, and then they don't really serve as deacons. In other churches, it's a title given to certain laymen as a title of honor. So he's called deacon so-and-so. But what is a deacon to do? God, God doesn't spell it out. He doesn't tell us what a deacon is to do. Now, he spends a lot of time on qualifications, 
but he doesn't tell us what he's to do. Why? Because a deacon is a servant, and he serves at the will of the elders. And so in 1 Timothy 3, he's associated with the elders in the church, and the elders are those who rule. The local church is not a democracy. Now, I know people like to Americanize the church, and that's why there's so much trouble in the church. You give new Christians, carnal Christians, mature Christians, all an equal say in some business meeting, and it usually spells for a good church fight. That's why so many churches are planted, not because they had some passionate desire to go plant a church across town. It's because they couldn't get along with each other. And one of the reasons is because we gave people authority who shouldn't have authority. God says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they give watch over your souls. That doesn't sound very American to me. Now, elders, in turn, are to submit to the congregation. We submit to one another in the Lord, and so we do that as an elder body. They're not dictators, but they are those who rule the church. And so that's why God spends so much time on the qualifications, because a church will stand or fall very often on its leadership. And if a man is not qualified to fill the office, then the church will be messed up. In 1 Timothy 3, there's a third reason why I don't believe Phoebe was a deaconess. Not only does the context not indicate it, not only when the office of deacon, when it's established, it's restricted to men only, but there's a third reason, and that's when the qualifications are given. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, let me just say parenthetically, men and women are equal. Paul said to the church at Galatia, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So we're equal. We're not talking about equality here. Please understand that. But we are talking about different roles that we are to play in the body of Christ. We don't all have the same role. The man, for instance, is called to be the spiritual head of his house. He is to be the leader, not the dictator, but the spiritual leader. He ought to be the one on Sunday morning saying, come on, kids, get up. We're going to church. In fact, we're even going to Sunday school today. He had a lead. And unfortunately, many women, they take the husband's responsibility and grab it from them. And sometimes, you know, I meet these women and they've been praying for their husband and, oh, pastor, pray for my husband. Pray he'll come to know Christ. And then I have the privilege to lead him to Christ. And all of a sudden, she's all upset because he's now taken the leadership. And we have women sometimes who command their home and they wonder why they're raising little effeminate boys. It's not by accident that very often in a home where the woman is domineering, you see these effeminate boys. Now, that's not a reason for homosexuality, but it sets some of these kids up because they're made fun of. Oh, you're a little girl and you're this and that. And some of these kids don't know how to process it. Men, be men. Step up to the plate. Lead your home. Don't be a dictator, but lead your home. Be a loving servant. So when he speaks here about the qualifications for a deacon in 1 Timothy 3, he says, deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. That's why we test our deacons first. We make sure they're going to deacon. You don't give a guy a title and all of a sudden that makes him a deacon. 
They're to be tested first. Now, we look first for men whom we discern to be qualified. We look second to people who are already serving, but then we let them serve with the responsibilities deacons do. And after six months, if they do a good job, then we ordain them. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute. Look at verse 11. Isn't he talking about deaconesses? Look at it. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate and faithful in all things. Now, I hope I'm not losing you, but the word women, like the word deacon, can be used in a technical or a non-technical sense. Context determines. This is the same word that is used in Ephesians when Paul says, husbands, love your women, your wives, gunikos, as Christ loved the church. Was he talking about women deacons? Uh, The ESV renders the verse this way. Their wives must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. The Net Bible, the New English says, likewise also their wives must be dignified. The King James says, like the New King James, even so must their wives be grave. And Paul, of course, in the same breath, when you come to verse 12, says, deacons must be husbands of only one wife. If you can tell me all the way through this whole section where he describes the qualifications for a deacon, he uses male descriptions. Why? Because he's talking about men. And if you can tell me how a woman can be the husband of one wife, I can tell you how she can be a deacon. You say, why does he drop this bomb in here about women or the wives of deacons? Very important question. Because many times a deacon, because he is a servant, will find himself serving alongside with his wife. A single mom has a need, a, a widower, a widow in the church has a need, and, and because wisdom dictates he doesn't go there alone, he brings his wife along. Or he cares for some family in the church, and they show up at their house with a problem, and they're struggling in their marriage, and the wife is there alongside of her husband. And if that wife doesn't have control of her tongue because she becomes privy of information, then she destroys the counseling relationship. Look, there's a lot of good men I've seen in my years of ministry who are highly qualified to be deacons, but their wife has disqualified them because they're gossips. So he drops this right in the middle. Now, that's not to say that men can't be gossips. They can. The Bible speaks of that as well. But the deacon's wife has to have some certain things in place as well. Look, it's not a matter of equality. It's a matter of roles. There are some things that only men can do in the church, and there are some things that only women can do in the church. Now, I know what I'm saying is not popular, and it's certainly not politically correct, but it's biblical. There are some things only women can do. For instance, when Paul speaks to Titus, the pastor, in Titus 2, he says this, "'Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior.'" not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, that they might encourage the young women. And then he gives a whole course of what they are to teach. And that's how we do women's ministry here. Most women's ministries I see in the country are a joke. You've got women trying to teach like men, and they've ignored the curriculum that God gave here in Titus 2. And so real true women's ministry is to be done, whatever book of the Bible you're studying, through the lens of Titus chapter 2. And if you know this chapter, in verse 3, he says, Titus, you teach the older women. In verse 6, he says, Titus, you teach the young men. 
In verse 1, he says, Titus, you teach the older men. In verse 9, he says, Titus, you teach the bond slaves. Teach the older men, teach the older women, teach the younger men, teach the bond slaves. But Titus, don't you teach the younger women. I, as a pastor, am not to have a discipling relationship with a younger woman. Why? Two reasons. Number one, God knows that very often a pastor, if he is really qualified, is a caring individual. So some woman comes in, she seeks counsel from a pastor, he's understanding, he's caring, he listens, and she lives with some tyrant at home who never listens to her. And all of a sudden, she becomes infatuated in that counseling relationship. And because we've ignored this advice, there's been great scandal in the church throughout the centuries. Not to mention there are some things that women just do a whole lot better than men do. Listen, ladies, you know a whole lot more about breastfeeding than I do. And you're much more qualified to teach the younger woman than I am on that subject. And God knows that. So when you look at the immediate context of Romans 16, it's not a capital D, deacon office. When the office is started, it's a male office. When the qualifications are given, they're male qualifications. So to read here in Romans 16.1 that Phoebe was a deaconess is nonsense. She's a deaconess with a small d. And that she's a servant. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is in Sincrea. And by the way, this is one of several instances in the New Testament when Paul gives a, a letter of recommendation of sorts. You might want to put out in the margin a couple of texts. Acts 18.27. Put that next to verse 1. Acts 18.27. And 2 Corinthians 8.18. 2 Corinthians 8.18, when someone leaves this church and they go to a new church, that church will write for their letter. Why do they do that? Based on passages like this. Well, we send letters. Why? Two reasons. When someone leaves this church and they go to another church or someone comes to this church from another church, we want to make sure they're in good standing. We want to make sure that they are not leaving a church with some problem where they're under the discipline of, you know, a board of elders and they're just moving their problem. Occasionally someone has a problem, they're under discipline in this church, and they think, well, I'm just going to leave. I'm going to go to another church. It's a free country. Do what you want. But you won't go with a letter of recommendation. I called a pastor just in the last two weeks and I said, look, if this person shows up, don't receive them. They have a problem in their life and they need to deal with it if they choose to move to your church. So there's a letter of recommendation about Phoebe. Why? Because she's a great woman. And I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, this church would not be what it is not for, except for the great women of this church. Some of you guys say amen. Hey, guys, I'm just trying to help you out. You know, I mean, please. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church. Verse 2, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. We are saints. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets, or listen online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877 787-7478 
and requesting program ROM72, entitled Snapshot of God's Church. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife Audrey is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. You can hear more of Audrey's messages on the Search the Scriptures app found on the iTunes and Google Play Store. And also check out Audrey's podcast, Rare But Real, on Apple, Google, and Spotify podcast platforms. And listen to her podcast at searchthescriptures.org. Monday, we'll look at more principles a church ought to seek to follow as we continue our snapshot of God's church and search the scriptures. <music>